Wow, what a, what a real and honest and vulnerable story. You know, I, I know Brad and I know Melissa, and, and here's the truth, and we say this here, that often we want to look like Jesus. If you don't know that, if, you, if you're around and you don't know Christians very well, we want to look like Jesus, but often on our way to looking like Jesus, Christians tend to look a lot more like people who need Jesus, and that was the story of Brad, and he needed Jesus, and, and his life looked like it. And, and, and what I love about that story, what I don't want us to miss, because today we're, you can type two, turn two, we're get, getting into the book of James, and we're going to be talking all about suffering and trial and tragedies. We're going to dive into all of that. But I want you to see from that video, and this is also a truth from scripture, that the way the grace of God shows up in your life when you're going through trials and pains, because you may want to ask that, well, how is God's grace going to show up in my life when all these terrible things happen? Here's the answer. The grace of God shows up in other people. And so really what you want to make sure you have is you want to make sure you have relational insurance, right? Some of you go, I need life insurance, right? Some of you doctors, you need disability insurance, Right? You need healthcare insurance, you need flood insurance. No, 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 fine, fine, fine. You need relational insurance. It's I need people who know and love God and know and love me, and I need to be connected to those people so not, not if or, or whether, but when the hard times in my life come, I'm ready and I've got a group. And so let me also just say this. Uh, when it comes to suffering, because that was a video on suffering, and today's a sermon on suffering, I can't, there's no pastor, there's no church leader who can answer every question on suffering, but here's what we can say. The Bible says that we have a God who suffers for us and who suffers with us, right? I'm not here to make fun of Buddhism, but when you see the main symbol of Buddhism, what is it? A fat guy with no shirt smiling. That's the symbol of Buddhism. That doesn't, it doesn't connect, it doesn't relate. What's the main symbol of Christianity? A young, innocent man dying on a cross. God is not a stranger to suffering. So even though the Bible says we can't answer, we, we can't answer the big, big macro questions, we can't answer every micro question in regards to suffering, we can tell you this, God's not, uh, suffering's not strange to God. God suffered for us in, in, at the cross. God suffers with us. And then the Bible's very honest. What, what every person is, not just every Christian, every person is a sinner and a sufferer. And that's the human experience, that we sin, that other people sin against us, that other people suffer, that we suffer, and it's one of the reasons we need the church and we need one another. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the book of James. Lord, we just listen to that story, and we realize we don't know when we might get a phone call one day and get some news about our lives or our health. And in that moment, we, we, we would pray that we would have a spouse like Melissa who would love us and pray for us. And walk with us. We pray that we would have friends, Lord. Lord, help us as each of us is exactly that. If we're going to be really honest about our experiences and our struggles and our temptations and our trials, we have to admit to ourselves and to those we love, we're sinners and we're sufferers. And we thank you that in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, there's help and there's hope and there's healing. And we need all those. We need the hope of the gospel. We need the help of other, other believers. A lot of times we just need to be healed and set free to love and minister to others. Lord, I pray you would use this word today to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, you can type to, turn to, swipe to, scroll to, uh, however you want to get there. The book of James, we're, we're going to be in this small little book in the back of your Bible. If you have one of those real Bibles that looks like a book, yeah, in the very back, there's a book called James. 
And, uh, and by the way, if you're brand new, welcome. We, we'd encourage you. It takes usually six to eight weeks to figure out what any one church is about. You can't figure it out through one sermon or one Sunday. You got to keep coming back. Let me encourage you to consider coming back for all 13 weeks of this series. We're going to be in this series all the way until June. And so by the end of that, you're going to know the book of James very, very well, because we're not going to skip one verse. We're going verse by verse, line by line through this entire book. Let me also say to you, if you've been coming around for a while, it might be time for you to head to the weekender. If you've been to the weekender, get in a community group. Why do I say that? How do I say this as nicely as possible? You will not get everything that you could get out of this series if you're not in a community group. The community group is where we work out and talk about and, and wrestle with all the things that we, that, well, I guess I basically that I talk about on Sundays. Uh, that's just for you to discuss them together. So let's look at James chapter one, verse one. All right, here it is. I'll read the first part of this verse. James, so some of you go, well, why is the book called James? Because Christians aren't very creative, okay? We're like, it was written by James, let's just call it James. Okay, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say, who is this James? And that'd be a fair question to ask. Is this James one of the 12 first disciples that followed around with Jesus? And the answer to that for sure is no. And how do we know that? Because at this point, that James has already been martyred for his faith. Remember, all the original 12 disciples were martyred for their faith, except for the apostle John, who's exiled to the island of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation. So he's dead. So then you go, who is this James? Guess who this James is? Jesus's little brother. How would you like to be Jesus's little brother? Everything's always your fault, right? <laughs> We know Jesus didn't do it, you did it. Also, the fact that James worships, loves, follows, serves Jesus is one of the clearest signs that Jesus truly is God because what would, you what would your brother have to do for you to worship him? You're like, no, <laughs> not happening. He gave me swirlies, you know, he gave me wedgies. I'm not worshiping him. So one of the first things we see is that he is Jesus' half-brother. In fact, I want you to understand a little bit more about Jesus. Some of you, you grew up in the church and you have a very religious view of Jesus. And you see him just in heaven and you understand only his divinity and not his humanity. Did you know that Jesus had four brothers? If you grew up like me and you're a recovering Catholic, okay? They're like, well, they're like hey, Mary's an eternal virgin. You're like, huh? Because I read Matthew 13, I read Mark 6, and it says that she and Joseph had natural sexual relationships and that they have four kids, well, four sons, they give the names. It says he has sisters, so he had at least two sisters. So think about this, Jesus grew up in a poor, blue-collar working family of nine. Some of you have never had that thought before. That's how he grew up. So you got, now listen to this. Not only that, uh, and you'll see this, and you'll see his pastor heart throughout, but, but, but James is a pastor. Now he didn't think he was gonna be a pastor. In fact, he goes from a doubter to being a disciple, which by the way, if you have your doubts, you might make a great disciple. And if you're a disciple, you still may have doubts. And if you're a disciple and you have doubts, what you do is you pick up your doubts, you put them on your back and you keep following Jesus. That's what you do. And you say, I'm gonna have the courage to doubt my doubts. And you do all that. Well, anyway, he, he ends up being this pastor. You can read about this. I won't take you there in Acts 15. He's pastoring this large, massive church in Jerusalem, the major city. So he becomes one of the most prominent leaders of the day. But he's also a man of prayer. And we know this from church history. We know this from the book because we'll see this next week, but the book begins and ends with prayer. So he's gonna call us to prayer next week. And the book will end, we'll get there in June, and he's gonna call us to prayer. He's known as Camel, the, the apostle with camel knees. That's his nickname in church history because if you've seen what the camel's knees look like, they're all worn. And he was known for his prayer life. And then if you look at the verse, it says he's, he calls himself a servant. Now that's amazing, he doesn't say apostle, although he was, because <clears throat> he saw Jesus face to face. He, he doesn't even say that he was Jesus' brother. We'd all like to play that card. Instead, he just says, I'm a servant, which basically is, it's the word doulos, it means slave. 
We don't use that term anymore because of the connotations, understandably so in America. Uh, but basically, here's what, here's what it means to be a slave. I'm in permanent devotion and love and loyalty to one person. So James ends up giving his life in following Jesus. He's thrown, church tradition tells us, <clears throat> he's thrown from the top of a building, doesn't die, they come down, they beat him up. And while they're beating him up <clears throat> and stoning him, he prays for his enemies. Well, where did he learn that? His older brother. <clears throat> and so now you may ask, <coughs> excuse me here, uh, now you may ask the question, okay, well, well, who's he writing to? Well, look at that, that's the, the second part of verse one. So just real quickly, we're looking at the author and then the audience. Here's the audience, to the 12 tribes. So he's kind of using these allusions to the Old Testament. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. So he's writing, by the way, this is the first book in the New Testament. So historically dated, there's no book in the New Testament written before this one. First Corinthians is the next book. This was written in the late 40s. It's less than two decades after Jesus rose from the dead. So these are like all basically brand new believers. And by brand new believers, I just mean they've been believers, you know, less than 20 years, and they're the first generation of believers. Their parents didn't believe. Weren't Christians. There weren't Christians around back then. Their, their grandparents didn't believe. And this is why this is such an important book for us. He's writing to people who have gotten comfortable with their Christianity, and they live in a very religious city. This sounds like Winston-Salem. <laughs> people who get comfortable in their Christianity and they're in a very religious city. And he's writing to them, and they're, they're, um, they're Messianic Jews. So when, when you read Paul's letters, you're like, oh, it's to the Ephesians. Okay, those are Gentiles. And Galatians, those are Gentiles. And Romans, those are Gentiles. James had a different ministry. Paul said, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. James was an apostle to the Jews. So basically, James is writing a letter to Messianic Jews. Now, here's the problem back then with being a Messianic Jew. No one likes you. Because the Jewish people don't like you because you believe in Jesus. And the Gentiles don't like you because you, you're Jewish. And by the way, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to upset all different types of people. The religious people won't like you because you're going to ask them to repent of their religion. They're going to go, what does that mean? <laughs> they're not going to like that. <clears throat> and the rebellious people are not going to like you because they're going to ask you to you're going to ask them to repent of their rebellion. And so what's happening here, and they're a minority in the culture, and this is, this is how Christianity's always been, okay? Cultural Christianity, thank God. Is, is dying in America. And true Christians are being seen for who they you know, really are. But what happens is when, when cultural Christianity implodes um, and you, you really realize I'm a minority in the culture, you have two options. You can decide to compromise or Christianize. That's what people, you know, you'll see this. People wanna compromise because it's like, well, there's a lot of them and there's a little bit of us. And it would just be easier to fit in and not stick out and to believe and behave like everybody else. And so that's the compromise. The other is Christianize. Let's just go away and hide and be really, really faithful, but create a monastery, not a missionary mindset to create a holy huddle. He's saying not to do any of that. And so James writes this book to them. Now, this book is intense. It's very direct. It's short. It's five chapters. It's got 54 individual different commands. So what James is doing is he's having a confrontational conversation with the church. Here's what he believes, and we believe this deeply. In five years in a ministry here, I believe it even more deeply, that hard words make soft people. But soft words make hard people. And some of you, if you're honest, you're in the same place that you have been because nobody's had the courageous, confrontational conversation with you. That the 10% of you, that's the better part of you, wishes someone would. I kind of wish someone would confront me about this. 
kind of wish someone would ask me some difficult questions about my marriage. I would probably be good if someone said something to me about the way I'm parenting. I wish one of my friends would talk to me about how much I'm drinking. But nobody's been willing to have a conversation with me. How many of you, people in your lives, your kid's life, your spouse's life, your friend's life, it's exactly where it is, in part because you have not had a courageous conversation that you need to have. There's, there's something you need to talk to somebody about. There's something you need to call them up on or call them out on or build them up with, and you've not done it. Well, what James does is he gives us the courage because he's just going to go right at it. Like, it's interesting. There's a lot of things that James doesn't talk about. James only mentions Jesus twice. This is kind of a weird epistle. Guess how many times the Holy Spirit's mentioned? Zero. Guess how much the cross is talked about? Zero. Guess how much the resurrection is mentioned? Zero. You're like, well, those sound like important topics. Jesus, Holy Spirit, resurrection, uh, cross, those are big topics. They are big topics. But they know all those things, and they're not living anything out. So he's, he's here to confront them and to lovingly, lovingly challenge them. And so he's going to talk a lot about their wallets and a lot about their words and a lot about their problems with anger and a, lo- a lot about their relational strife. And he's just going to get intensely practical. And here's the big idea that their faith needs to be lived out in the real world. That there's, no, there's actually no such thing as a fruitless faith. That what faith, faith does is it actually works in you if you have real faith. So, so, so the, the reformers, uh, they were in the 1500s, they said, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. <laughs> in other words, it, it, it does so much in us and it changes us. And so what I want to do is I want to talk for, to us just for a little bit about what faith is. Because a lot of times we'll, we will have the same as Christians, we'll have the same vocabulary but a different dictionary. And we're not defining things the right way. And so faith is one of those like, Christians have a lot of words. It's like, what does grace mean? What does peace mean? What does faith mean? What does hope mean? Let me tell you what, what faith is. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. That's literally what it is. Paul prays that in Ephesians 1, that God would open up the eyes of their heart. What is that? That he would give them faith. It's the eyesight of the soul. It's the ability to see the invisible word world according to God's written down word. So you read the Bible, you go, I, I see Jesus hanging on a cross and I believe it. I believe it really happened. I believe in somehow it happened for me. I, I read and I, I actually believe in heaven and I believe in hell. And I believe that there's a final judgment. And I read the Bible and I believe that I have a soul. And I, and I read the Bible and I believe there's angels and demons. It's the ability to see the invisible world according to the written down word of God. Here's another way to think about it. It's a sixth sense. You know, that you, you got smell and you hear and you taste and you touch, okay, all that. You've got to, when you become a Christian, you get like a sixth sense. I remember this. I became a Christian. All of a sudden, it's like, I have faith. It's so, I, I believe things. I love God. I hate sin. Where'd that come from? Faith is a gift. Now, People, and I gotta spend a little bit of time on this, and then we're gonna get to the rest of the text for today. People get confused about the book of James because of the way he talks about faith. Because there's three components to faith. I want you guys to understand this. This will help us understand the whole book. Faith is what God has done for us. Faith is what God has done, is doing in us. And faith has to do with what God's gonna do through us. Okay? So faith is, is, is first and foremost, faith is what God has done for us. And so people who like to talk about that, they like to read Galatians. They like to read the book of Romans. It's all about what God has done for us and put your faith in that, rightly so. Namely, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in what God has done for you. Um, and, and, and so normally how that happens is that's how a person becomes a Christian. 
And it normally, it looks something like this. That faith happens in your life when you realize, God loved me, sent his son to die for me, and wants to have a relationship with me. That's what God has done for me. Now, James doesn't talk about that at all. Galatians does, Romans does. James talks about a second thing, what God wants to do in us. It's the word sanctification, becoming practically and progressively more holy. That's what this whole book's about. Becoming the godliest version of yourself. You could say, if what God has done for us is God loved me so much he died for me, uh, what God's doing in us is God loves me so much he actually loves me as I am, but loves me too much to keep me where I am. And so you can think about it this way, what God has done for us is forgiveness, um, right? What God has done in us is he's gonna change and transform us. Your marriage can be different. Your addiction can be broken. Your bitterness can go away. You don't have to have this, you can be a better parent by the grace of God. It's like all of that. And then, then there's what God is going to do through us. And that's ministry and mission. And people who love that love the book of Acts, right? Yes, God, God is gonna change the world and make disciples and people are gonna come to faith in Christ and lots of people are gonna get baptized and God's gonna use me and that's great. And James talks some about that, but here's how that feels. It's the reality that God wants to use me in the life of others. When I was doing college ministry, which I've told you about I did for 10 years, there was one thing we wanted a freshman to get by the end of their year, if they were a Christian, just one thing. We were hoping if you're a freshman in college, by the time your freshman year's over, you have this experience. God would like to use me in the life of other people. That's it, yes. Because you, you have that conversation with someone like, Hey, have you, is your roommate know the Lord? No. Do you, would you like to do something about it? Uh, me, me? Yeah, God would like to use you in the life of other people. You're going home and your parents don't know the Lord. Are you going to talk to them about him? Me? Yes, God would like to use you in the life of other people. I want you to get addicted to being used by God in the life of other people. That, that, that's kind of the idea. So what, what we're talking about in this book is faith and how God works in us. And, and, and so it's kind of, a, it's interesting. This is not an intense message this, this morning, but it's a serious and sobering message because the first thing God says that, so remember the whole book's about how God is going to, by faith, work in our lives, okay? The number one way, or the, at least the first way that we're told that God works in us is through suffering. It's like not necessarily what we wanted to hear. Is <laughs> through trials. Let, let me show it to you. Look at verse two. So if you'll flip with me to verse two, here's what it says. Count it all joy. So count means to consider or to think about. Joy isn't like chipper, smiley, shallow. Joy is like a settled contentment that's hopeful. That's what it means, joyful. Count it all joy, my brothers, you could say and brothers and sisters, when, not if or whether, when you meet trials of various kinds. So the, the big idea from this text and this sermon today is that the number one thing God is going to use to shape you throughout your life is going to be suffering. And that in that suffering, you have to believe, even when you can't see it, that there is a purpose and a plan in the pain. That's what, that's what he's trying to communicate. He's not gonna be able to tell you every purpose, every time, every way, but he's giving people hope. God's at work in the midst of suffering. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. He tells us to consider Consider it joy when you face trials. Now, here's, I, I thought about this a lot this week. How do Americans, you know, when they think about their lives, what do Americans think? I genuinely think Americans don't think they're going to suffer. They have the expectations, and I don't know where we get it from. I, I think part of it's the enlightenment. I, I thought about this because during the enlightenment, there was this kind of this idea of, you know, continual cultural progress. 
you know, the things are, I mean, we have flushing toilets, like we have air, air conditioning, like we, we can be the other side of the nation in four or five hours, like progress, right? We're all, we're all real happy about that. That's great. We get in our automobiles. I'm still amazed at that. We can go 70 miles an hour in a, in a comfortable vehicle. You know, we can heat our seats if we want. We can listen to whatever. It's like we live in an unbelievable world. And so some people look at technological progress and go, well, maybe the whole world is just going to continue to get better. And then, and then we kind of, I don't know if our parents tell us this. I don't know if we think about it. I don't know if it's from watching TV shows. But I think people go, well, middle school was hard, but high school would be great. And then they get in high school, okay, okay, high school was good, but I'm really looking forward to being in college. That's going to be really great. And then when I get out of college, it's cool. I'll be single, and then I'll go live in some really cool city. And then, and then I'm going to get married, and I'm going to find someone who loves me, and I'm going to love them, and marriage is going to be easy. And all the married people go, ha, 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 right? <laughs> and, then, and then we're going to have kids, and my kids are going to love and respect me, and I'm going to have a great relationship, it's going to be easy. And everyone says, ha, 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 right? <laughs> and then in the midst of all of that, I'm going to find a great job that I love. That makes me lots of money. Ha, 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 right? All that. <laughs> And in the midst of all of that, I'm going to have a lot of time off. It's like, you know, and then, and then we, so, and then we have, and then I'm going to have lots of easy relationships. And then one of the things, by the way, that we assume the whole time, and I understand it, I'm not here to beat anyone up, we assume health. We're just like, yeah, I, health is a factor, but I don't really think about it. It just stays the same. In fact, I, you know, it's like, well, why do we think that? The, the, the second thing I think that we, so there's two things that I think make suffering particularly hard on Americans. Number one, we just think things are going to get better. Like we look at ourselves, if we're 20, we're like, well, by 40, I'll be married and I'll be, you know, successful and I'll have this much money and I'll have this much freedom and, and my life will look like this. And then you, you know, what is a midlife crisis? Well, it's a lot of things. Part of it's life was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And now I'm about halfway done and I'm not sure what to do. The other thing is that makes it particularly hard for Americans is the way that we view suffering. We just think, and it's how, it's how, it's how a non-Christian, I think, would view it. It's how somebody who has no hope for heaven would view it. It's there's no purpose to suffering. That's how the average American views it. And if it comes into my life, I want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And I think that's because if the goal of life is self-fulfillment, self-expression, happiness, then all suffering is, is all it's doing is hindering me. Now, the biblical perspective is the exact opposite. The biblical perspective is every person is going to suffer. Remember, this is a big theme. First Peter 1 talks about this. Romans 5 talks about this. Now James 1, those are the three main areas. If you want to go look at those in your community group. 1 Peter 1, Romans 5, and James 1, they all say basically the same thing, and it's some version of do not be surprised, please. You live in it. It's like, why shouldn't I be surprised? Well, you're a sinner. So sometimes you're going to suffer because of foolish things you do. And then you live with a bunch of sinners. Okay, so then sometimes you're going to suffer because of foolish things that they do. And then the hardest one, and sometimes the most arbitrary one, is like, well, you know, it's like, why does like some, you know, 24-year-old get cancer? It's like, well, you, we live in a sinful world. No one did that to you. You didn't do that to yourself. Sometimes the worst things happen to the best people. But suffering is just this reality. Like, I'll say this oftentimes because it's good for me to hear, and I think it's good for us to hear, is that everybody that you know and love will die. It's, just, it's a weird thought to have. It's a thought that we probably don't think about much, but it's like, yeah, everybody. Every single person that you know and love will die. And on the way to dying, there's going to be a lot of horrible things that are going to happen to them and to you. And, and a lot of it, from a human perspective, will seem unfair. And when you say this out loud to people, everybody, because I've done this now, this is my third time doing this, everyone in the room's like, 
darn it, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, you just said out loud what I've, I've known is true and didn't really want to say to myself. And the other thing is that the longer that you live and the more people that you love, it only increases your suffering for various reasons. But when you, when you love somebody, that's actually what you do. You, you, know, you, 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 in, you welcome, with every new person that you decide to genuinely love, you welcome more suffering into your life. And that's okay, and you should. And it's one of the reasons why sometimes a mom who's very, very thoughtful, she'll think, is it worth bringing a child into this world? Because I, I don't know what's going to happen to him or her. I don't know what kind of life that they will have. And I'm going to bring, and it's kind of an interesting thought, I'm going to bring into someone into the world who will die. And people have to wrestle with that. And so I, I want to talk to us a little bit about the types of trials. Because if you look at verse 2, he says various trials. It literally, in the Greek, is multicolored trials. And what that means is that every person in here is going to face different trials. You know, you're going to have different trials than you are. And you're going to have different trials than you are. And the game that we often play when it comes to trials is the game of who's suffering more. Trust me, that's not a game you want to play. The game of who's su I'm suffering more. No, I'm suffering more. Guess who loses in that game? Everybody. That's a game where everybody loses. But what I want to do with our time is I want, I want to give us some categories. And I want to talk about suffering in some practical ways. And here's one of the interesting things about a sermon on suffering. Almost every sermon that I give is usually for today. Like normally when I'm giving something, I'm like, if I'm talking about wisdom, it's like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, go home and talk about this and apply this today. If we're talking about marriage, it's like, well, here's three things you can do when you get home tonight, okay? The, the, the interesting thing about suffering is it's really not a sermon for today. So you have to kind of, if, I hope you didn't check out, but you, you kind of don't check out because this, this will be for the future. It's actually even not for people who are suffering right now because people who are suffering right now can't really handle a sermon on suffering. Like I, I, when I was in seminary, my biblical counseling professor, he said, if you know someone and they're really suffering and you bring them a book on suffering, he said, the best thing you should do is take a lighter and light the book on fire in front of them. <laughs> and then use the warmth of that fire to warm them. Because in that moment, that will actually do them more good than a 400-page you know, book on the sovereignty of God and suffering. But we need to know these things now. So I was this week, I was with a mentor, pastor. Um, he's 70 years old. And he's, he's talking to, there's eight of us. He's talking to these eight young pastors. Really neat group. But anyway, he said to us, he said, um, I've been Job twice in my life. I thought that's an interesting way to say it. He's 70. He said, I've been Job twice. He said, first was when my wife got cancer about 30 years ago. We thought we were gonna lose her. We didn't. He said, and the second was when I made some foolish decisions in 2007 and 2008 with finances. Nothing sinful, but foolish. And I ended up going real upside down. He said, in both times, he said, I've been a pastor for 25, 30 years. He said, both times when those things happened, my wife and I looked at each other and said, everything we taught is true. All the things I talked about on suffering, like they were concepts and they were from scripture and I believe them, but now I'm Job. You'll probably get to be Job once or twice or three times in your life. And so th th this sermon today is for when you're gonna end up being Job. And you, you need to know these things now. And so let me give you the five categories of suffering. There may be more than this, there aren't less than this. The first type of suffering, and probably the most common suffering, and the suffering that is most likely to happen to all of us as we age is physical suffering or suffering in regards to our health. This is not something most young people think about, okay? But now I will tell you at 37 years old, I'm starting to get sleeping injuries. Does anyone else get these? It's, it's, I'm not sure how it happens. I have a nice mattress. I go to sleep for eight hours. I wake up and I'm in pain. I'm like, how did I hurt my back laying down for eight hours, okay? 
it's ridiculous. The, the, the whole point is that your body tends to begin to, the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe I'll preach it at some point. The book of Ecclesiastes, about half of it is the guy grieving about his body falling apart. And it's one of the reasons why the resurrection of the body is not an important doctrine to lots of young people. But as you get older and as your body is more and more broken down or as you, you know, so, and by the way, when it comes to health, the hard thing is some of these things are chronic. So you, you know, you, that's how so certain trials, we tend to think of a trial, it's like I'm going through a trial, I'll be out of it. It's like not always, unfortunately. What's type one diabetes? I would call that a daily trial. That's what that is. And, and, and it's like, well, some suffering is chronic in its nature. That's why as Christians, we've always looked to the resurrection. The second type of suffering is financial, or you could say financial career, right? And, and you know this. I mean, you, most of us know this. You, you get out of college and you start realizing, man, it's hard to make enough money. And then you get married and you go, it's really hard to make enough money. Then you have kids, you go, this is really, really hard to make enough money, right? right? And it's, it's hard to make money. It's also hard to keep money. Those are both hard. That's why the average family fortune only lasts three generations. And the, av and the average Fortune 500 company only lasts 30 years. Well, why is that? It's because money is very hard to keep. So what happens to people is they had money and they don't have money. A lot of times what happens is you get called into your office and you think you're getting a promotion and you find out you're getting let go. And then you, have, yeah, then you ask all these questions, right? If you've ever had that happen to you, you start asking all these questions like, am I the kind of person that doesn't know that I'm not good at things? Which is maybe worse than getting fired. Am I the kind of person who isn't a good employee and I was the only one who knew that? And then you have to ask a bunch of other questions like, well, what are, you know, because these questions come real quick. What are we going to do? What are we going to do without healthcare? And you can have all of these different questions. Sometimes it's the career itself. I know a lot of particularly men, women too, but men who they don't even like their jobs. And their whole job, and they think about doing it for the next 20 or 30 years, feels to them like a trial. So there are physical trials, there are financial trials. Uh, third, there are relational trials, obviously. It has to do with all of the relationships that we have. You know, your life is only as good or bad as your closest relationships. You're only, you tend to be only as happy as your least happy kid. And so what happens is you get all, you are in all these relationships and then something happens and someone lies or someone betrays you. The average person is going to be betrayed once or twice or three times in their life and that's unbelievably difficult because it usually is somebody very close to you that goes against you and now you see that person differently for the rest of your life. It's very hard. Some people are going through a relational trial because they're just isolated and they're alone. There's relational trials. Fourth, there's emotional and mental trials. And the church is just getting better at learning to talk about these things. And the best way that I've been able to think about it is people have broken bodies, and no one's, no one's upset anyone for having a broken body. You know, if you broke, so you broke your body, like, let's get you to the hospital. But then we've, we've, we're learning how to talk about having a broken brain. You know, a broken brain is, dude, my brain just doesn't work right. I don't know why I struggle with bipolar. You know, my brain is broken, and I just feel like depression comes upon me, and I don't even know why. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a very famous preacher. He was the first megachurch pastor. He was a wealthy pastor. He was, uh, had a big church. He had lots of friends. He had a great marriage. And he would write about, you can Google this, he would write about often his bouts with depression from out of nowhere. That he, it would just come upon him. For some of you, it's PTSD. For some of you, it's anxiety. And for some of you, that's chronic in the way that it comes upon you. And then finally, there's spiritual trials, Right? In fact, if you look at the book of Job, if you, if you read Job, you're like, okay, his wife's being mean to him, his friends aren't really that helpful, 
his family dies, he loses everything, he has, he's, his health is attacked, You're like it's all of it. And then you realize, wait a second, hold on, it was all spiritual. We had a, there's an intelligent, evil being who hates you and hates the church. His name is Satan, and he's behind all of this. So part of what happens when a church is a minority in the culture is persecution happens, and we can't get mad at people when persecution happens because they're, they're not our enemy, ultimately. All persecution at its root nature is satanic. And so he's saying, okay, this is, these are the types of trials. And then look what he says. I want us just to read. It's very simple, but I want us to read it again. He tells us how we are to respond in it. Look what he says. He says, count it all joy. Consider it. I told you, that's a, it's a helpful, content confidence is what joy means there. It's like God's at work. God's not absent. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So here's what happens. I can tell you what happens because it's involuntary. This is what happens when you face a trial. Well, let's imagine you get a phone call because that's how I would say half of, half of the way you discover a trial is through a phone call, right? This is why one of the scariest things to do is to wake up and have like four missed phone calls. Like some from early in the morning, like why is my brother calling me four times in a row? This is not good. You, you'll, you'll feel it. You'll get that sick feeling in your stomach. You're like, what's, or you, you know, why, why it's 9.30 at night. Why is Bob calling me? It's like, I don't think this is gonna be good. And you pick up the phone and there's lots of different things, right? Sometimes you get the phone call, hey, mom and dad are getting divorced. That's the phone, it's like, oh. Sometimes the phone calls from your doctor. Hey, John, we saw something we didn't wanna see. I need you to come back in. I've got, I don't have, I wish I had better news for you right now. Hey, dad took a turn for the worse last night. You need to get up here right now. I think we've got, you know, two days left with dad. And, and, and when that happens, there'll be a lot of involuntary things that'll happen. Sometimes you'll, like, you'll get nauseous, depending on how bad the news is. This is all well documented. You can get nauseous. You can lose all your energy. You can just want to go to sleep. You can go into withdrawal. Very, very common to go into denial. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. It's shock and then denial. This isn't happening. But what normally happens for most people is they get into eventually a religious mindset, which is they, I'm saying this is for Christians or this is for not a Christian. But they start to talk to God. This is why they say there are no atheists in the foxholes, right? They start to talk to God, and, and I'm not saying sometimes it's angry, but sometimes it's just an honest conversation with God where you say something like this, God, I don't understand it. I don't know why we're having all these financial problems. I've always tithed. Or you might say, well, you know, my kid, why is my kid getting sick? Or why is my kid going astray and breaking my heart? We, we kept him in youth group. We did devotionals as a family every day. You may say, God, why do, I, why do I have stage four pancreatic cancer? I mean, I, I, I want to be around and I want to be a grandfather. And, I, and all of those are good, but here's, let me just say, from, I'm trying to go to the deepest level. Here's what you're saying theologically. God, I relate to you by works. And I thought we had a deal. It was unstated. That's the whole thing, by the way. Expect, that's the problem with expectations. You don't know they're there till they're not met. That's what everybody experiences their first year of marriage. It's like, I didn't know I had all these expectations. Yeah, I didn't know them until they weren't met. And so we all tend to have this relationship with God. God, I thought if I, you know, if I, if I tithed and I went to church and then my kids are gonna be godly and my health is gonna you know, stay the same. And I mean, I had one lady, she said to me one time, she said, I'm just so upset. I said, why are you upset? She says, my husband left me. And she said, the hardest thing about it is he went back in the day, he checked all the boxes for what a Christian should be. And I read all the books on what dating is. You know, she said, he even worked at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> She said that to me. But the, she, was, she, was bro she was brokenhearted, understandably, right? Because we have that religious mindset. God, I thought that because I do this, that you were going to do that. And, and 
listen, I've got good news for you. God doesn't relate to you by works. Thank God. You don't want God to relate to you by works. You don't want to play the game God I'll do so you can do. God relates to us by grace and by mercy. The second mindset we go into is more of an atheistic mindset. And people go there. Even Christians can go there sometimes. Depends on what you, you know. People have had to deal with the Holocaust. I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go this morning. We don't know how much time we have. It's like suffering is difficult to deal with. It's the number one. If you read books on Christian apologetics, it's like, yeah, we'll talk about creation, evolution, blah, 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 blah. We'll talk about re the resurrection and you know, suffering. That's it. Because that, that, it's very emotional. And what ends up happening is, um, you know, you, you, when terrible things happen, you, you, if, even if you know a little bit of Bible, you kind of go, wait, if God's good and God's in control and God's loving, let's just take, I mean, God's more complex than that, but let's take those three attributes. Then you have to like have this conversation with yourself, like, well, why did this happen? Because you have to, every, every Christian, if you're going to be biblical, has to get to the point of saying something like this. I guess God allowed. You could say it as soft as possible. I guess God allowed this to happen. I guess God permitted this to happen. And then you might say, why? And you have all these questions. And then some, some people, it's too painful. And they just say, well, God doesn't exist. Because God wouldn't. Because God couldn't. And it, it's, I'm, they're really hurt. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not making fun of anyone. But normally it's, it's an issue of pride. Because I don't know the reason there isn't a reason. It's like, well, maybe. Let's take eternity into perspective. Let's take a wise God in perspective. We have to have the wisdom of God in all this as well. But I love what, what Rick Warren said. Rick Warren lost his son to suicide in his late 20s. <clears throat> his son was in his late 20s. And he said, after wrestling with all this stuff, he said, I decided I was going to walk with God and not have all my questions answered. He said, that was option one. Option two was to walk away from God and think I had all my questions answered. I mean, is that really the answer? Yeah, God doesn't exist. This is all random. When we die, we disappear. What does that solve? Now you have all your answers. Are those the answers that you wanted? It's not helpful. The other mindset we have to avoid is the victim mindset. Oh, woe is me. We, where we turn inward. Where we, where we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. Instead, we need to have a trusting mindset that says, okay, I don't understand everything. I can't see everything. I can't even see that far ahead of me. In fact, by the way, one of the things you do, this is really practical, I didn't say this in any of those services. Uh, when you suffer, you shorten the time frame. You have to. That's rule one of suffering immediately. You shorten the time frame. You know, something terrible happens to your kid, you go seriously start thinking, well, how are we gonna do this for the next 50 years? No, you don't think about that. You think next week. I can't think that far. You think tomorrow. Okay, that's all you do. That's the number one rule of a practical rule of suffering. You shorten the time frame so that you can deal with it. That's what you do. And so we had to say, God, I can't see very far ahead of me. I'm going to shorten the time frame, and I'm going to trust you in it. Let me show you what happens next. Verse 3. He says this, for you know that the testing, so he's telling us something else. He's saying what a trial does is it tests you. It's not because God doesn't know what's in your heart, because we don't know what's in our heart. You don't know what's in your heart when things are going well. You're so domesticated. <laughs> you know, you, you're well-fed, and you, every room you ever walk into is air-conditioned. And you have enough discretionary time and discretionary income to handle problems. It's like, you don't know who you are. You only know who you are when terrible things happen. So it says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So Christians are like tea bags. it's been said. You don't know who they are until you put them in hot water. <laughs> 
And then you're like, oh, that's who you are, right? You've heard the saying, right? You don't know who someone is till they don't get their way. That's how, that, then you meet the person. You're like, oh, I didn't, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet real you. Um, and what suffering does is it introduces a person to themselves. I, so I, I, there was a pastor, and, and he was a pastoring an Anglican church. And in the Anglican denomination, um, they own your building. The denomination does. And, and they, they oversee your retirement accounts and all that. Well, the denomination had gone theologically liberal, and he had stayed. I heard him tell the story. He had stayed committed to the Bible. And so the denomination said, well, then we're taking your church, and we're taking your church building, and you're not a pastor anymore. We're uncredentialing you, and we're taking your retirement. I mean, imagine that. This guy was like in his 50s. And I heard him tell the story, and he said, when, when they took my building, and they took my job, and they took my retirement, he said, I, I'm sitting there alone by myself, and I, and I have this thought. I really believe. He said, I just, I didn't, because I'm a pastor. It was my job. I, you know, it was when everything was taken away, and the worst things happened to him, and he wasn't happy that any of it happened. But he said, I'm really a Christian. You don't know, that, that's what, so a faith, here's another way to say it, a faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. And so when God tests your faith, it's one of the ways to say you really know what you, you know who you are and you know what you value, right? We say we value character, right? That's the right, I value character. It's like then something hard happens. Actually, I value comfort, right? We're all about the spiritual things. The spiritual's more important. You lose your job. I really like the material. <laughs> I mean, we should have an eternal perspective, so we should like be longing for heaven and longing for Jesus to return. But the first time we find out we may be going to heaven a little bit more quickly than we thought, it's like it reveals what's really in our hearts. How, I mean, how much time do we spend praying for God to keep very old Christians out of heaven? Pray for grandma, she's 114. We're just, we're just praying she'd hold on for a couple more years. It's like, I'll pray for grandma, but why? Grandma loves the Lord. We, we need a view of heaven. We spend so much time that praying that God would keep old Christians out of heaven, and we pray so little that God would convert people so they can be Christians and go to heaven. And so, so it, it, what, what it does is it reveals what we value. And, and then it does something else. Look at me at verse um, 3 and 4. It says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's one of James' favorite words. It means active endurance or active, active patience. It's kind of an interesting word. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Perfect and complete is the idea of fully integrated. Because what suffering does is it reveals what you value, it reveals where you're not believing things, and then it lets you repent and change and fix that. So that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So with, with the time left, I want, I want to tell you three of the main purposes for suffering. And I want to just be real practical here at the end. Now, I'm not saying there's not more than this, but there's not less than three purposes for suffering. And, and part of what... So kind of I said, you'll be shaped by suffering and there's a purpose in your pain. Part of what you need to know is that there is a purpose and there is a plan in your pain. That something is happening in your hurt. That there are lessons you know, to be learned in your loss. All of that. Because the one thing that we literally cannot handle is meaningless suffering. So I don't know if you know much about the gulags. The gulags were the concentration camps in the Soviet Union. They were terrible. They were horrible. You were going to get killed there. You were fed very poorly there. Uh, you were disrespected the whole time you were there. But just to make it worse, they would make your work meaningless on purpose so that you would go insane. And so what they would do is they would say, oh, there's, you know, that side of the room. Hey, there's a lot of rocks over here, guys. And I would like you to move all those big rocks over there today. 
And the first day the guys did it, we're like, well, that's cool. I mean, at least we're going to get you know, work out and get in shape. And well, are we building something for them? That's great. So then they would take the rocks and they'd move them over there. And then they'd show up the next day and say, hey, guys, you're going to take those rocks and you're going to move them back over there. And they realized this is what we're doing every day of our lives till we die. I mean, think about it. Even as I say it, you weren't even there. You could see like, what? I can't do that. I can't put myself under that type of suffering and pain and it's nothing. So, so men would often kill themselves in their prison cells at night because they could not handle the apps. They could handle everything else about the gulags. They could not handle the meaningless suffering connected to it. So let me tell you the three, three things that Christians, and this isn't, I'm not this smart. These are what Christians have always said. Uh, the three purposes are, are develop, development, discipline, and direction. And I'll unpack those for us with our time left. Development, discipline, and direction. So development is that, you know, God's going to mature you, and we used the word earlier, sanctify you. A part of what God does through our suffering is he, he grows us up, right? C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us every day, uses a megaphone in our pain. He uses our pain to, to, here's one way, he weans us from the world, right? Have you ever met somebody who lost a spouse? Part of their heart is in heaven. If you've ever met someone, it's tragic, who's lost a son or daughter. They long for heaven in ways that the rest of us don't. There's, there's, I remember first year we planted this church, one of my friends brought one of her friends uh, to the church. And she said, I can't remember the lady's name. She said, you need to meet so-and-so. She's a really godly girl. I said, really, tell me about her. She said, oh yeah, you probably couldn't tell because she was wearing a long blouse. She's missing one of her legs. I said, really? She said, oh yeah. She said, she was in a horrible boating accident when she was 16. She said, she knows Jesus a lot better than, than you and I do. And I thought, that's exactly right. I mean, imagine at 16 years old having a boating accident and losing one of your legs and having to wrestle with all that. It's like, well, you're, you know, and she still loves the Lord. It's like, well, yeah, she knows Jesus better than all of us because she had to go through something unbelievably painful and she knows God better on the other end of it. Here's the other thing about development, that your greatest, your greatest suffering, your greatest weakness, your greatest struggle, your greatest sin becomes your greatest ministry. That's what happens every time. I've not seen this not happen. So you'll, we, have, we have men, and I'm sure women too, but we have men in our church who they, they were addicted. You know, when you, addicted, addiction, by the way, is a temptation that leads to a trial in your own life, right? <laughs> it's like I gave in and all the benefits were on the front end, I thought, and then now it's, and now it's destroying my life. And so the temptation becomes a trial. It was wrecking their marriages. Anyway, these guys repent, they grow, they change. They're some of the godliest men that we know now, and they love to invest in other guys who are struggling. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing more powerful in ministry than to look at someone and say, I was where you are. And I know exactly how you feel. And I know the way out. Let's, let, let's, we're gonna go up the mountain together. I mean, that's what you want. Think about it. Like if somebody is, okay, you're really struggling financially and you can't make enough money. Do you just wanna talk to some rich guy who's never had any money problems? Not unless he's gonna give you money. <laughs> then you'll go to that meeting. Um, but, but normally, normally it's like you, you need someone who's like, hey, I know what it's like. We had to tighten the belt. There was a three-year period where we had a lot of questions. We had to go on government insurance. I mean, we, I've been there. Let me tell you how I processed it. Let me tell you how my wife and I dealt with that. You know, it's like someone who struggled with infertility. Very difficult just to talk to people who were, it was easy for them to have kids. You want to talk to somebody who's walked that road as well. 
you have trouble with your kids, you don't want to talk to someone who feel like they, I mean, we're grateful for these people who had perfect kids and their kids all love the Lord and follow the Lord and they didn't have any prodigals. You want to talk to somebody who's had difficulty. And the other part, the way that suffering develops you is it makes you a more compassionate person. Before you suffer, you tend to look at suffering people and you think, within reason, you think like, get it together. Life's hard for everyone, come on. Enough, with your, enough of your depression. It's time to get to work, right? I mean, you may not say that out loud, but it's easy. If you've never suffered and then you, you know, then you suffer and you go, I, I don't even know why I'm depressed. I was talking to someone this week, dealing with depression. Have you ever been depressed in your life? No, it just came on me. I don't even know what's going on. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't want to feel this way. I don't choose to feel this way. Makes you compassionate. The second thing is discipline. So there's development, discipline. Um, See, so Christians don't believe in karma. Karma is like this weird, there's a force and what goes around comes around and all that kind of stuff. Christians believe in the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. It's taught throughout scripture. That you, you, know, you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, you reap greater than you sow, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I wanna explain, I think what's important is because when you're going through suffering, here's what you need to know, God is never punishing you. Here, how do we know that? We know that theologically because God doesn't punish sin twice. So he already punished Jesus Christ instead of you, if you're a Christian. So God's not punishing you. Now God di might be disciplining you. And di here's what discipline is, and, and I didn't get to this in my sermon on parenting, but here's what, what parents, it's like, well, you know, parents can decide you know, what kind of discipline they're gonna do. But here's the principle of discipline. Here's the principle, this is really helpful. The principle of discipline is I want my children to connect pain with sin early and often. I want them to know that it's, it hurts to rebel. And that sin is not pleasurable though it may feel that way, sin is only gonna bring pain into my life, so I wanna help bring pain into their life appropriately with, with, when they sin so that they connect sin and pain for the rest of their lives. Some of you got caught. That happens. A couple times a year, someone gets caught. They don't confess they got caught doing something. And it's usually discipline from the Lord. It's like, I, it was gonna get a lot worse. I, let you, I had to let you get caught so that you could deal with this before it went and got a lot worse in your life. Finally, direction. And direction just means that God often uses our suffering to redirect our lives. This is a huge biblical principle. What does God use with Jonah? Jonah's running away, it's kind of both discipline and direction. Gets him off the boat, gets him in a fish, redirects him back to Nineveh. Probably a better example would be Joseph. Joseph's going through all this suffering going, why? Well, Joseph, you don't know this because you can't see everything, but I'm redirecting your whole life to give you a whole different mission and ministry. And you have to go through a lot of pain to do that. Well, how about the Apostle Paul? It's interesting when you read all the, I don't have time to do this, when you read all the letters together, you, you start to realize how interesting Paul's life was. And there's this one letter, I can't remember who he's writing to, and he says, hey, he, he says, uh, sorry, I couldn't visit you. I wanted to minister to you, but I got sick. And you look at another letter written about the same time, he says to another group, I'm so glad I got to meet you and visit you while I was sick. And you realize, oh my goodness, Paul got sick, which, you know, and God used that trial to redirect him so he wouldn't go to one area, he'd go somewhere closer and he leads these people to Christ. Some of you, you lost your job and you don't realize you're upset about it, understandably, so you don't realize God's redirecting you. A lot of times some guy or some girl breaks your heart while you're dating, you don't realize actually you dodged a bullet. <laughs> God's, God is lovingly redirecting you. This is why, look, let me read it one more time. Three, verses three and four, where he, where he starts here, he says this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, but you have to go through it, right? You can't go around suffering, you have to go through it. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. At the end of the day, the message of the Bible is that you have to go through death to get to resurrection. That, you have to, that the cross comes before the crown. That suffering comes before salvation. And the promise of scripture is there's a purpose in the pain, that, that the greatest trials in your life, the greatest good can come out of them. Now you go, where, you go, James, where did you get this from? Like this is great teaching, but how would you think, James, that out of the worst things, the best things can happen? The answer is the cross of Christ. Right, I mean, the, the, the cross is the definition of a tragedy. Think with me for, about the cross for a second. The cross of Christ is the worst things in the world happening to the best person in the world. That's the definition of, of a worst tragedy. Young, innocent man, misunderstood by his people, betrayed by a close friend, deserted by the rest of his friends, physically beaten. All crucifixions were done naked. I know they don't show you that, in the, but it was to shame them. Publicly shamed. Die in front of your mother. It's the def- There's nothing worse. It's the worst thing that happened to the best person in all of human history. And my guess is, we don't know, but my guess is James is watching it going, why Jesus? And maybe why God? You're gonna make, your mom's gonna lose her son. I'm losing you as a brother. Why couldn't you shut your mouth? Why did you, and it's like, until we get the 1 Corinthians 15, 6 and 7, which says, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. He gets a particular mention. And in that moment, James realizes, I think for the first time, oh my goodness, out of the worst thing in human history, the best thing in human history has happened, the salvation of sinners. But nobody looking at it, looking at a bloody, innocent, naked man dying on a cross, you would think Satan wins. You'd think, I don't know how to explain this. Nothing good can come of this. There's actually a fourth purpose in suffering. As we close, I told you development, and I told you discipline, I told you direction. But for a lot of people, it's how they get delivered. It's how they actually go from spiritually lost to spiritually found, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You know, Jesus tells a parable. He says there's four soils. He says, you know, there's the hard soil, there's the rocky soil, there's the shallow soil, there's the good soil. And you, go, you might go, well, how, do you, how does soil get good? Storms. That's what changes soil. Do you want to know that almost every person that walks in this building who didn't grow up in a church and didn't, didn't move here looking for a church, they came in here, guess what happened? A storm. Heard testimony of one lady, my son was born super premature. I, I was super scared. I didn't know where to go. It was the first time I entered a church. It's like, wow, what's happening there? God's using a storm in our life. You'll meet a lot of people who it's through debt or it's through a depression or it's through a death, or it's through a divorce, that God uses it to open up their eyes and to bring them to faith in Christ for the first time. I wanna, I wanna close by reading uh, you a poem. And it's, it's a poem by a, a man who lost, he lost his son and wife, and, or, or child and wife during childbirth. And he writes about the experience. And I just want to read this to you because it's really hard to articulate what is suffering and, and how do we feel in it and how can there be hope in it. And I thought this was a great way to, I thought, I thought he does a great job explaining this. So if you'll, if you'll bow your heads, I'll read this and pray. Just receive this. He says this, this is a man writing who just lost his wife and child at the same day. 
He says this by faith. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break. I'll pin my faith, my all in him, because he maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by, the mist will lift, and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though it was dark to me, he made not one mistake. Lord, that's what we want to be able to say by faith. Lord, we are sinners and we are sufferers, Lord. And suffering is no respecter of persons. And sometimes the worst things happen to the best people. And sometimes we feel like looking at the cross, even before we understand resurrection, we look at our suffering or we look at the suffering of our friends and family and we say, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't see any good coming out of it. Lord, I pray you'd give us the right expectations for our lives. Give us hope and contentment in suffering, Lord. Use it to develop us, Lord. Use it to redirect us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.